Yeah, I've been watching The Growing Pain since 1972. I, I imagine. Where were you in 1972? <laughs> I was very young. I was born, so I was born in 1964, so I was... 64. Yeah, and, and I started reading Ayn Rand when I was uh, yeah. 13, so a couple years after that. And uh, who got you interested? A, a band called Rush. Uh, Dr. Paul, thanks for having me. This is a real honor to be here in your in your enclave here in Lake Jackson, and Good. and I wanted to uh, I wanted to start with with a story that I'm not everybody knows about some of your positions, but I I think some of your sort of intellectual history and how you discovered the ideas, particularly of Austrian economics, is maybe something that that some people don't know about, and I, I think it's important because you turned on so many young people to names like Mises and, and Rand and Hayek and Rothbard. How did you find these ideas? Well, I don't have one precise moment that, uh, or a precise person, but I think all of us, and it would include you or anybody who gets to the libertarian message, I think we're born with a curiosity instinct that, uh, and somebody might perk it up a little bit, but I went through college interested, but a little bit confused. I was studying economics and all, and then, uh, I guess it was Goldwater, Goldwater period, uh, and uh, uh, reading about him, and he would mention Austrian economics, and, and uh, then it dawned on me that what I was seeking to do was to replace everything I was taught officially and what I was listening to. Uh, I had to get rid of that education and get a new education. So in the early years, uh, it was probably, oh, then, then the next, probably the first significant book was uh, uh, Hayek, yeah. you know, Road to Serfdom. And then one would lead to another. But I think the factor that's important uh, is curiosity. You know, I'm still very curious on how to understand things, how to how to explain things, and how to promote the ideas. But some people never get curious, and probably never will. I think the large majority of people never get really curious, and uh, but they then are generally just going along uh, with the status quo and the majority opinion. You can see it today. I I don't happen to believe that all these people out on the streets are Marxists. <laughs> but yeah. you know, there, there's a way you can relate to that because there's leadership there that believe in it. Yeah, so, yeah. But, I, but I work on that assumption, so it's the elite few that I'm interested in talking to with uh, my activities, people that are curious enough uh, to come and look. I was influenced a whole lot with Leonard Reed, and Leonard Reed was good on education, and uh, he said that's the most important thing you do is get self-educated and not worry about where you're going to be uh, next year, the year after, because if, if you know what you're talking about and people are comfortable with you, uh, they'll find you, you know, it's sort of the old issue of the remnant is out there. And if you represent something, people will come. And uh, the most delight I had in that regard was when occasionally, it had to be occasionally, a congressman would come and they say, I've been watching your vote. It's strange. <laughs> you know, you vote with liberals, you vote with conservatives, and uh, tell me more about this. And then they would modify their viewpoint. So, uh, but that's not the way it works. The Congress yeah. is a reflection of the status quo of the educational system. You know all that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, so Leonard Reed at the Foundation for Economic Education, I think he was the first 
free market think tank, certainly in the United States, but, but he was a retailer of, of ideas. He, he wasn't really interested in having uh, sort of esoteric academic conversations. He had this beautiful metaphor of lighting a light and seeing if people would, would come yeah. to it. And I, I, I think it's interesting, you mentioned the, 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 the trending of Marxism in the United States. Um, but your first book was was Hayek's most popular work. It was it was it was short, it was sweet. The Road to Serfdom was a was a grippy title, um, and it was kind of it was almost a pop culture thing. It's a serious book, but it was it was a pop culture thing back when there was no other version of that story being told in the popular culture. Mm -hmm. That that's got to be part of the story here, um, and and to, to to fast forward, there is a um, a, a guy that influenced both of us, Dr. Hans Senholtz. Mm -hmm. I was a student at Grove City College, and I had already found um, Ludwig von Mises in high school because Ayn Rand, in one of her nonfiction books, says if you actually want to understand economics, you got to read Mises. And accidentally, I went to Grove City College to discover that there was actually a full-fledged <laughs> Austrian <laughs> economics program. Did you find Dr. Senholtz through fee? No, but I worked with him a lot in fee, and uh, he was a chairman there before he was chairman. I was chairman for a short while yeah. uh, for fee, but no, um, it was through the mon monetary issue. Yeah. See, I uh, quite frequently mention that my uh, real enlightenment came in 1971 because the Austrians in the 60s, I was reading in this, and they said this can't work, and there's going to be a big deal coming, and and uh, there's going to be uh, a devaluation, and it was artificially, you know, gold was pro uh, you know controlled at $35 an ounce. So I was very much into the monetary issue, and still am because I see it as being a universal event for everything we want to do, uh, you know, because you have to pay for it, and it, it represents so much evil as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So um, because of that, I was uh, came across anybody that would write about gold, get on newsletter, and one newsletter that I got got involved in was um, uh, uh, the the um, oh, excuse me. Uh, the the gold bug from uh, New Orleans. Uh, uh, that's terrible. Anyway, he 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 had a conference. Uh, uh, it was the first conference, probably 1971 or something. Yeah. And uh, Jim Blanchard, Blanchard, he was very well known. I give him credit for getting gold re-legalized. He had a c committee called National Committee to re-legalize to legalize gold. So I went there. Uh, Jim had his first conference very early in the 70s, probably right after the Bretton Woods broke down. And uh, I remember taking the time off and flying over to New Orleans. But the uh, the economist he had there was uh, Hans Senholt. So that's where I met him and talked to him. And we stayed in touch a lot after that. And he, he was somebody I got to know where I, where I was still studying but didn't have a teacher in a classroom to ask yeah. questions. I, yeah. I would call him up. He'd, he'd, he'd explain things. He was he was just great. He was from Pennsylvania, and yeah. I was from Pennsylvania. So, uh, and of course, I've been to that campus uh, quite a few times. But Sentholtz uh, uh, was, you know, he he had a lot of influence on me, probably out of 
proportion to say the books that Mises has written or Rothbard had written because he was a teacher and it was practical and he was a friend and yeah. but he was he was the first one of course Leonard Reed was a, was a teacher in that category but then it was then I was led into meeting uh, the various ones you know whether it was uh, Rothbard uh, uh, Mises and Hayek and uh, Friedman not an Austrian but also a free market person and uh, that always was an encouragement to me. Yeah, you uh, you know this, and and I, I don't know if you knew it at the time, but when you were running for president, um, you would you would drop these names, Hayek and Mises, and and all that, and you had a generation of young people who had never heard of Austrian economics or or young people, but they but they did because of you what you did in terms of re-educating yourself. Yeah. And replacing formal education, which doesn't teach you about any of this stuff, <laughs> with with these ideas, and and Sendholz in particular, he he focused on the manipulation of money, and credit, and inflation, and debt, and and he was a he was a practical guy. He was focused on the actual impact that these things had. But but the Austrians have a different view on this stuff, and I, I thought we might dig in a little bit so that people understand why the Austrian perspective actually um, is a good framework to figure out all this crazy stuff that's going on in the world today. Because um, I think Mises' first work was on money. And you know, the origins of money, and he got it from the founder, Carl Menger. And, and he very much worried about uh, central planning and money as, as, as creating bad signals mm -hmm. and all of that. What is the, what is the what is what is the Austrian take on money that's different than than the kind of economics you would get? In yeah, I'll, I'll answer that, but it reminds me of the story somebody told me that when he got married to Margaret, and uh, he said, "I wanted to tell you something." He says. I will be talking and you're going to hear a lot about money, but you're never going to have a lot of it because he wasn't in the investment business. Yeah, he, yeah. he wasn't going to do that. He, but uh, Trying that to save money wasn't a lucrative yeah. business. Now, your, your question is what's particularly about the Austrian school and Yeah, what's money? the Austrian take on money that, that leads you to, to think about things uh, against fiat currency and for the gold Well, it, it was the introduction to this understanding that it was all wrong during the 60s and before and the, the Bretton Woods Agreement of 1944, you know, all this stuff was just misled. I see it uh, probably the biggest issue is the moral issue of it because it's equivalent to counterfeiting. It is, it's official counterfeiting and that can't be good. You, know, you can't do that. And then, then the next step, well, what does the Constitution say? Oh, it says you're not allowed to do that. Yeah. So it's a constitutional issue. Then you say, what about the economic issue? Doesn't it help a lot of people? And uh, no, it helps them for a while, and then they suffer. And one group gets benefit, the other group don't. And then especially, I liked uh, the understanding, which I've come to believe is the correct viewpoint, and that is that the distribution of wealth becomes distorted and uh, and then we have the answer to the Marxists because they use today's economy oh those free market people so you and I get thrown in that thing you know that oh yeah look at it uh, you have the super wealthy and the poor getting poorer then there's a bailout and the rich get bailed out no matter how hard they pretend they're gonna help the common man because even if they help them that lasts a week and they're back to it yeah so I think that uh, was a big issue for me because it was after I was practicing 
practicing medicine. I was very busy in the early 70s. And uh, then uh, I, um, uh, when, when the Bretton Woods broke down, uh, you know, that was a strong message. It was during that period of time before I had decided to run for anything. Uh, is that uh, I heard a, uh, I read in our newspapers, you know, very, very little clip in our local, the Houston newspaper, and it said that Von Mises was going to give a lecture at the University of Houston on such and such day. I, boy, I'd like to go and meet him and hear his lecture and all. And so there was only one person I could call that I knew that would know who Mises was. So I, there was another doctor. So he and I took the afternoon off from our medical practice, drove up to Houston. We heard him give the lecture on, on, on socialism. Yeah. So, but it was then, uh, then I got to the point where I wanted to talk out. I wanted to, uh, somebody needed to know this. So I, why, nobody, no, nobody teaches this, nobody talks about it. And the more I studied, the more significant. You mean that's the only way you can Finance the welfare state. What if you don't need like welfare? Well, get rid of the Fed. What if you uh, think we get into too many wars? Well, how do you think wars are financed? And uh, you know, it boils down to the destruction of money, the moral principle of counterfeiting money and serving the powerful special interests. So that to me was very attractive. So if you let, if you allowed it to exist, the libertarian message exists to that, and you can talk to progressives. Yeah. And frequently yeah. I had good friends that were progressives, you know, that uh, we, we, would, we would talk about this, and, uh, and I've never come around to agreeing on the economic things. But, uh, but no, and then uh, in 1974, it was, uh, uh, well, in 73, I decided, well, that was a Watergate mess going on. Yeah. At that time, there were, Three, three members <clears throat> of the delegation in Texas that were Republican. Everything else was Democrat. And it was Watergate year and nobody was gonna run in 74. The district I lived in was uh, uh, Democrat for one guy I had it for 25 years. So uh, I, I said, well, I'll just run for office. I went and talked to, I, I was gonna do it as an independent. Republicans heard that. No, why don't you run as a Republican? We'll, let you sacrifice yourself. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll do that. So that that uh, got me in, into doing it. But uh, it, it, so I tell the story. You probably heard it's pretty boring. Uh, <laughs> that I, you know, I was practicing medicine. I was very busy. But now I had this thing going, being torn between what I really thought was important, what I really enjoyed, and I thought was important. So I told my wife, you know, I said, I think I'm going to run for Congress, and she said. What in the world did, because she saw family, kids, little kids, Rand was pretty small, <laughs> and we had five kids, and I had a good practice, and she said, what are you going to do that for? I said, I just want to talk about this, I won't mind too much, because I, I want to just to express my views, and she said, she said, yeah, it's just a dangerous thing to do, and I thought, is she into conspiracies or not? No, yeah. she, no that wasn't it. She said that uh, you'll probably w no. She said you'll you'll win, and disrupt our lives. You know, yeah. and I, just, I guaranteed her that that's not going to happen. No, nobody knows what I'm talking about. Nobody really cares what I talk about. And it's it's a, a district that's never been Republican, and I don't have any money. And uh, she said, but she said, yeah, but you'll be telling the truth and. And they'll like that, yeah. you know, which is something that came back many years. People, a lot of people voted for me, okay, put me in office, 
because they said, well, at least we know you're telling the truth, which is, I guess, nobody in politics, you, you don't do that. So it was a strange way to accidentally fall on a good theme. Yeah. So, uh, but I, yeah, I didn't win in 74, but immediately afterwards, I think the guy that was in was ready to retire and he saw maybe a little bit of a threat that I'd be back the next year, so he resigned. And it was a special election, unusual circumstances. And that's one thing about politics. Uh, it, sometimes it's luck, and uh, I couldn't have planned any of that. If he hadn't resigned, I'd have never gone to Congress. If, if the Bretton Woods hadn't existed, I'd have never gone to Congress. I had no desire to go to Congress or be in Congress. You know, I was there long enough that you'd think a successful politician after being there 22 years you'd think you'd have been chairman of the banking committee but i think you know how the system works <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it doesn't work that way seniority is if you play the game raise the money feed it to the parties vote the way they tell you i that's not what i'm into it for so but uh, i had my chance and then uh, there was a special election and that was a real surprise you know that i actually ended up winning it so but i was in and out of office i stayed there six seven years and I said that uh, I want to go back to medicine. It was, it wasn't. I, I'm not cut out for this. <laughs> and then by eighty, uh, ninety-six, uh, you know, uh, I got pressured into and said, "Why don't you do it again? Do this again? Look, uh, the Re Republicans just took over the House. You know, maybe they're better now. Oh, maybe." I said, "Yeah, but think." Think of the baggage now. I ran, in between, I had run as a libertarian, strongly opposed you know, the drug war. I, mean, I think that's really evil. Uh, I think he, drugs are evil too, but I'm a, he, uh, the, the drug war. I said, that's, um, uh, that's a, you know, just. Uh, Most Americans have caught up with you on that. Yeah, that's that right. Now. I think I, uh, libertarian sort of won that. Yeah. But I said, I can't win, but I'm in the Bible Belt. And here I've talked about legalizing marijuana. And of course, and I was always able to say, I said, yes, I am. I something to tell you the truth. I've never ever seen a person smoke marijuana. I was pretty much removed from that. But I was, the, I think, an ideal person to start talking about it because it was, it yeah. was, it was, you know, on principles of liberty. And it was also coming from a doctor that didn't like, you know, drugs. So, uh, uh, but I remember my first press conference because it extended up into Houston. So the press conference was held in Houston because there was better media. And uh, I thought, you know, this, this, this thing won't work, you know. So I had the press conference. I can remember the very first question, the uh, aggressive reporter, one was there with the Houston Chronicle. He hit me hard on the drug issue. And I said, I knew this, I knew that. But I just gave him my answer, you know. And, and it was, people, people never really held it against me. And my suspicion was that even back then, where it was, um, people knew something was wrong, the politician knew it was something wrong, but boy, they were so intimidated. They would never vote just a token little, maybe we shouldn't put them in, prison for 20 years oh reduce it to 10 oh no we can't do that we got to be tough on crime you know drug crime so so uh that was uh 
uh, I think the people were way ahead. I think you indicated way ahead of of this issue, and I think that's why uh, it finally came around. Uh, yeah, maybe people had never heard the sort of principled liberty argument as to why people should yeah, be free yeah. to make those choices and make them more comfortable. And how and how government can can create perverse incentives that that destroys yeah, right. lives. But you know, you said something earlier that that I think is is pretty fundamental, and I I try to tell this to people that are aspiring to political office and, and they, they have the right values. Um, but there's something about politics that, that you know, the consultants tell you, don't, don't tell the truth, don't say what's on your mind. You can't say that because people won't elect you. But you broke that rule by, by just going out and being yourself. And so why, why isn't that, like why don't more people learn that lesson about you that you can actually be successful communicating to people if you're authentic mm -hmm. and you're real and you have a set of principles? You know, I think about that, and I get questions on that in general, but never totally resolved of why. But maybe my wife had it. Maybe people are starved for hearing the truth, and yeah. they, they believe what I was saying. So it was my earnestness that did it. But why didn't more people come that way and say and look at it as a economic or a, a political benefit? Uh, they're slow learners. <laughs> now they went, can you imagine anybody campaigning now? Uh, they want tougher laws on marijuana. So they're not going to do that. That's a matter of fact, that's a big deal going on on how to handle because I've done programs where I've expressed my disdain about the militarization of the police. Yeah. At the same time, uh, it's not without sympathy when I think about, you know, freeing up 10,000 violent criminals and then uh, defunding the police. You know, uh, uh, that's that's not my position. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's, um, and, and people get confused about this and it, there's, you always get this false choice in modern politics where you either um, are for all of the laws that, that put young people in jail for nonviolent drug offenses or you want to defund the police. and it's like neither of those is the correct position. The, the correct position is, why don't we start by decriminalizing and making not illegal all of this stuff that's not actually a crime. If you didn't, if you didn't hurt anybody, what's the crime? And that, that, of course, is a classic libertarian position. Legalize freedom, what a radical thought. Yeah. <laughs> but that, I spent a lot of time on that um, during the presidential races on the college campuses, that what it means uh, to have control of your own life. Yeah. Uh, it's not an endorsement of doing dumb things. Right. But, we, you know, we don't make it illegal. But, and I always made a big point, but if you have that right to your life and that you own it and you can go and do it and you do dumb things and you screw up, uh, you can't go to the government to get bailed out. Right. And usually, I would get a good applause on that. It was a responsibility, yeah. and uh, but that's that's so that's pretty removed from what a what a dedicated progressive would think. Oh, right. we got to protect them, you yeah. know. Yeah, like liberty is a responsibility, and I, and I feel like sometimes libertarians don't tell that side of the story that that civil society and communities and families and and churches and that that whole infrastructure that that. Hayek writes a lot about the, mm -hmm. the social institutions that hold society together. That's part, that's the real social safety net. Um, so if you make a mistake, you probably are going to get some tough love from your family and, and your local church, but it's not a bailout and it's not, 
it's not a safety net in the sense that you no. will not be held accountable I, I for think, your own actions. I think being a physician helped me on my, on the drug issue because you know I, I would usually uh, tell them I don't I think they're dangerous and you shouldn't use them. But yeah. uh, then I had this other political position, and uh, when see when I ran in that first race. Uh, it was a Democratic district, and then he resigned. The Republicans then remembered me. I don't know if you know any of this story or not, but the Republicans remembered me, and they thought, we can't let this happen. Yeah. So they they got, uh, Laughlin was the congressman. Actually, he turned out to be a friend and a nice guy, but he, 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 was, he turned to his Republican, and they put him on Ways and Means and Gingrich, raised money, and congressmen, dozens and dozens of congressmen, both our senators, our governors, endorsed my opponent. They had to keep the, I, I, a Republican seat. When I went up before they had switched that, I went to the Republican luncheon, because by that time there weren't three, there were about 15 Republicans. And I said, no, I was trying to be generous. I said, you know, I said, I, I can help. I can make, uh, if I'm gonna run, I said, but I can help you, you know, make this a Democratic, uh, a Republican seat. Yeah. And uh, I kid, I said, I never realized how quickly I did that. Two weeks later, it was a Republican seat because they got they got him the switch. Yeah. But it was a very very interesting. He had so many endorsements, political endorsements. But I don't know if you know the story, but I had one, Nolan Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> Nolan Ryan's endorsement carried the weight. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So uh, and that was uh, that was uh, you know I interesting. But uh, I think that uh, uh, the Republicans were gunning for me because uh, they. Oh, I, what I wanted to say was the Republicans uh, just when I was running against another, I had to win a primary. Then I had to beat the incumbent. Uh, you know, first before I went after the the Democrat, so they uh, they they used the drug issue. They spent back then a million dollars was a lot of money to spend on this, just on the drug issue. That I was crazy and destroying kids and uh, looking at the babies and it was the ugliest, meanest thing. And so uh, I, just, I knew it would happen. I I was very stoic about the whole thing. So. Uh, with a with an ad person, we worked out something that I put a white coat on and held a newborn. I was, you know, and it was very, very bland, you yeah. know, bl yeah. bland but powerful enough. Yeah. And most people, so many people knew me anyway that yeah. I had delivered thousands of babies, and they painted me so badly. So you'd think it's so I was able to beat uh, the uh, Republican. Went into the. Uh, into the uh, round or you know the major election, the general election, the Democrats did the same thing. Spent all their money on this idiot yeah. who thinks you should legalize drugs, yeah. and they painted it in the worst. And so I, I got a big charge out of that. I thought the strength of the message, the the strength of putting it out there, yeah. has a lot to you know a lot of value. <laughs> it's it's fascinating. Like and I, and I'm thinking about something you said earlier. That, that, that a lot of your views were attractive to progressives, honest progressives that were thinking about the redistribution of wealth through the Federal Reserve. And it kind of goes, goes back to Mises' critique of the business cycle, like that those injections of, right. of easy money and credit, they don't land equally across the economy, they fall in the laps of, of the, of the well-to-do and the connected, the insiders, if you will. So there's there's sort of a progressive populist critique of 
of the Fed. Uh, same with the drug war. The drug war um, puts a lot of black and brown kids in jail for, for nonviolent behavior. There's a progressive argument for that, but there's also a, a freedom argument for that. Um, but it seems like both the Republican establishment and the Democratic establishment, based on the story you just told, they spend all of their time fighting you and the liberty message. What are they afraid of? <laughs> yeah, well, you, you'd wonder, but, uh, but, but they did it, and it didn't work very well. Yeah. <laughs> so more, more they yelled and screamed, but uh, that, that was, uh, you, you know, a challenge. And, and I, really, I really, deep down, didn't care if I won or not, so yeah. that wasn't my goal. Uh, That's why you were bulletproof, because you, you weren't looking for power. Yeah, yeah. and uh, the, um, they said, well, how do you handle the... Uh, how do you handle lobbyists? Don't they put pressure on you? No, I'd ever see them. Yeah. <laughs> they just knew where I stood. And, and Gingrich at one time made a statement. He was speaker, and I would go occasionally, not often, but I would go occasionally in the early years of attending the conference. And he was in a tight fight to, to get enough votes. And he would come in here, and he says, we are going to do this, you guys get everything you know you want. You got, everybody has something in there, and you're going to vote for this bill, this budget. He says, except Ron Paul, he doesn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> he said that, and I, and I said, well, you know, they leave you alone yeah. after a bit. Like if, if they, they hold the chairmanship against you, they, they will cut off your funding. Um, but at that point, you were untouchable because you, you had sort of beat their well-funded candidate. Yeah, and the chairmanship, uh, you know. Yeah. See, the conditions aren't right. I need more people like you out there doing more stuff to get the consensus. Because, uh, you know, even being president, what, what can you do? You yeah. know? Trump tries at times, but then he really gets clobbered. I think his instincts, he wants to do this, but all of a sudden, you know, the pressures get pr pretty great. So, we know it's, and that's why I think politics is so secondary to it. I think it's changing people's mind, have something they believe in, something that they understand and feel good that it's an American tradition and uh, that, uh, you can argue with, cons uh, you know, liberals that there is a consensus, uh, you know, that it helps the poor people. You want to protect the middle class, you got to listen to us, you know, and uh, that, uh, that I think is a, a big help. And uh, that's the reason that uh, I became very good friends with Dennis Kucinich. He's an uh, uh, honest progressive, and we didn't talk economics. Yeah. But uh, he came around to strong supporting me on uh, on uh, Federal Reserve, and we, sometimes he and I were the only ones voting for non-interventionist non foreign policy. So he was he was very good. And uh, I was thinking about the other day there was an announcement uh, that uh, some troops were going to leave Germany. Not exactly my method, but they were going to leave. And it looked yeah. like they might be going to Poland. Yeah. So it didn't didn't fit uh, the, the uh, idea of a non-interventionist thing. So. But uh, it reminded me that over the years, um, Barney Frank, uh, I got along with him better than the Republican chairman of the banking committee, yeah. that he would come and he was interested in the subject of, of uh, bringing troops home from Europe. 
for, from a very liberal viewpoint, but never rearranging things. He just thought, save some money. Progressives sometimes say, save the money, we'll spend it on the poor. That's yeah. how we'll So anyway, I would always co-sponsor co it. And I thought of that the other day, that one of the things we were going to get the troops out of Germany, <laughs> and I, and I, yeah, that's exactly what we tried to do. But uh, maybe, maybe we helped this much. <laughs> you know, there is, um, and I'll, I'll ask you at some point if you have any really juicy, embarrassing stories about young Rand Paul, because you mentioned him earlier, but I'm joking, I'm not, we'll, we'll do that off the record. But uh, the, one of the things of the current generation, not just uh, your son Rand Paul, but I would put uh, Mike Lee in this category, Thomas Massey, um, Justin Amash has, although he's no longer a Republican, but he has traditionally found lots of lucrative partnerships with, with people on the, the sort of far left of the Democratic caucus on surveillance, on war, on crony capitalism, um, on the drug war. And, and these are all things that, that you, were, you were fighting that fight very lonely back, back in the day. Yeah, and uh, I, I, like I say, I, I, I just don't have high expectations, you know, like, oh, tomorrow I'm gonna save the world. Mine is very, very modest approach. My goal is, to understand the bill, to understand the issue, understand it and know, explain it, and plant a seed here and there. So it wasn't it wasn't so much uh, how far we would get. Yeah. The coalitions I would just for strategic and educational yeah. reasons to help explain to people that we do have the message to bring people together. Uh, you know, it's a I think, and that probably I convey that uh, with the young people because. When I'd go to a campus, average talk would be an hour or so, and I never had to worry about a clock, and I would talk, but I would be very enthusiastic. But probably 45 minutes was just saying, you know, this, is, this place is really messed up. Yeah. Look at the budget, look at these wars, how many people have died, look at the loss of personal liberty, just go on and on. And then the last 10 minutes, I would get on to, well, what do you do about it? And that's when I would get really excited and uh, say how positive it is. It's not complicated and anybody can understand it. And uh, I, uh, I guess on a several occasions, somebody afterwards came up uh, to me and they say, you know why I like listening to you? Because you're so optimistic. I said, optimistic? I just, 45 minutes I told you it was the end of the world. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I think the first part is uh, you gain credibility. You're telling the truth. And mm -hmm. the people know there's a problem out there. You're not denying it. And then you come up with a philosophy, which is they should feel safe because it's very positive. It's pro-American. It's pro-legal. It's moral. It's constitutional. And it doesn't take much. Yeah. It doesn't take much. It's so, 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 so great that you can do this. Uh, doesn't cost any money. You end up being wealthier under these conditions. Yeah. So, uh, but, but I always like the last 10 minutes to be more than the other part. <laughs> well, you're also putting the power back into the hands of the audience. Like this, you can do this. You don't need someone to go to Washington, D.C. Um, you, you can take your, your lives and your liberties and your country back from these insiders. Um, you, you ran for office many times, and, and particularly your presidential campaigns. Did you know that you were kind of doing what Hayek was doing in that it was a it was a soapbox for cultural change as opposed to 
in insider position where you were going to pass legislation from the inside. Yes, but I don't know whether I'd, I'd have to have a precise definition of cultural if, yeah. if things were better, you know, you economic. Turning on young people to the well, ideas is yeah. what I mean by that. I remember one time, and this will uh, bring up Sandholz, I, uh, Leonard Reed would teach, study, learn it, understand it, and if you're worth your salt, they will come. You yeah. know, they'll seek you out, and uh, it's not like you have to go and beg and plead to give the message, but they, they will come. One time, um, I, I, I wrote a paper, gave a little speech, and it was popular, and Sennholtz uh, uh, wrote me, or we talked, and he said something, well, that was uh, very good. Uh, he came up and he said, what... Uh, uh, Oh, I think I concluded and made the point that you don't you don't push too hard. That was uh, Leonard's idea. Yeah. Don't push too hard, uh, and you tell them when they ask you. And I was delighted when somebody would, like a member of Congress, somebody could sit down and ask me. And Sandholz wrote and said, "No, tell them you're a teacher." <laughs> so he brought up the subject. I know he was trying to sort out what I was. He says, yeah. "You're not into politics. You're you're a teacher, but you tell them." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. So <laughs> it was a compliment coming from somebody I admired. <laughs> so I have this theory that I that I tell people, and and I'll I'll test it on you. Sometimes people are shocked and offended by this, but at a very superficial level, I, I compare you and the Ron Paul revolution to the Bernie Sanders revolution. And, and I'll explain that before you get offended by it, because at a, at a superficial level, you guys, first of all, you're both authentic and you're always the same person that you always were. And he was always a socialist. Um, but you know, his stump speech was railing about permanent war, railing about crony capitalism, railing about the drug war and mass incarceration. Um, his solutions were, were to expand government, but, but I think at a, at a, at a, at a certain level, he was probably turning on the next generation of people just like you were. Do you, do you buy that or is that crazy? Yeah, I think the first half is perfect. That's what we were doing. But then when it came for that last 15 minute speech, that was totally foreign Socialize to him. Socialize everything. And, but he was preparing for it. But uh, I would say that my last 15 minutes and his last 15 minutes, uh, I would like to think that I was, uh, in a happier frame of mind. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but no, it, 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 I think it is that way, but he has a different end goal. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but in the meantime, you know, to get there, uh, but I think so many, I, I, I don't know exactly where Bernie would be on, on this, but we want to get out of, get out of Europe mainly because we want more money for the yeah. welfare beneficiaries. They, yeah. they, they don't understand the basic economic. Yeah. So, you and I can talk about this because we sort of have a good understanding of why sound money and limited governments and balanced budget is actually a benefit to people, but uh, they don't they don't understand that. But I think uh, the the appeal is such, and he has an advantage and a powerful advantage is because uh, without somebody shouting our message out there as the alternative, uh, the message always comes from the university professors. Oh yeah, that's exactly what my professor says, and this is what we have to do. And uh, what do you need this and that? So they they uh, do it. But a person like Bernie, uh, we worked 
not always to my satisfaction, but he, he would come across as being anti-Fed, but it was less the way they were intervening rather than understanding uh, the, the money issue. Yeah, he was, he was flirting with substance, but he ended up backing off on that, as yeah, I recall. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, let's, let's pivot to current events, because I, I want to take these principles and, and, and try to explain some of the, the it's, and it's all bad, all the headlines are bad right now. You know this, like um, the government seems to be hell-bent on screwing everything up. And I, and I want to ask this first question because you were on the inside and you've been trying to get us out of permanent war since the day you went to Washington, D.C. Barack Obama ran on getting us out of Afghanistan and Iraq and, and getting us out of the wars. Uh, Donald Trump ran on getting us out of Afghanistan and Iraq. But it doesn't ever seem to happen. Why, why can't we get this done? Military industrial complex is very powerful. The deep state runs things. But uh, Obama actually campaigned on the issue, yeah, Iraq's a bad war, but Afghanistan is the good war. So he promised that he would be involved there. And, and he, was, he, he was only, you know, he was only uh, trying to win over some of our people because he, was, he and Hillary were terrible on Syria and Libya. And uh, even though his, his rhetoric would be the same. Uh, no, I think, uh, I think Trump probably would be a better non-interventionist, uh, but he's not going to be a fighter if it comes down to uh, self-destructing, you know. It's, it's the power of the deep state, yeah. and, and they are very powerful. And uh, he, uh, uh, I, I sometimes think, well, you know, when I'm not happy with Trump, he's doing this anyway. Why doesn't he just bring the troops home? Why is he going to send them to Poland? I think that's a dangerous thing to do. Yeah. And I will say to myself, uh, he probably has had the least amount of body bags than any president in the last 20 years or so. You know, they're, they're being killed, but uh, we don't have, that's, that's a pretty gross way of measuring things, but it does tell us a little bit. I, I think he, uh, I think he he wants to avoid the the conflict, but uh, he's also uh, he's also willing to use uh, the CIA and de he do and uh, and do that and violate you know, you know the methods. Uh, I think in some way, <clears throat> I've never talked about this, but somebody would have to research to to uh, laugh at me or something. But I think his foreign policy is a little bit like uh, Eisenhower's foreign policy. And Eisenhower's the one that says, you, you know, the military industrial conflict. But Eisenhower was terrible. You know, what was the first thing he did? He used the CIA for the overthrow of the Iranian government. And he did that. But he, anytime there was an emergency, you know, in, in, uh, in Europe, you know, uh, where the Russians, the Soviets were moving, he never sent troops in. I remember in 76, I thought uh, there was the Suez crisis. The British and the French were trying to save the canal. And a big thing, oh, they're going to be talking to Eisenhower. They're going to come down here and help us out. And uh, it's 76 wasn't that many years uh, from the, uh, uh, you, you know, the, the, the Korean War. I thought, oh, I'm going to be drafted. I'm going to be drafted. But in about two days, it was over. Eisenhower said, forget it. So I, I think of him like a Trump, yeah. but he's not afraid of, because he, he was a strong endorser of the Dulles brothers. And the Dulles brothers weren't exactly libertarian. They were very authoritarian and uh, 
there's there's a lot of shenanigans going on, especially Alan Dulles. Yeah. I don't know where you stand on that, but I think he was not a good person. <laughs> yeah, well, I, my knee-jerk reaction to almost any politician is probably wasn't a good person. But <laughs> present <laughs> company accepted, of course. Um, so yeah, like Trump is like he's a he's like a ball of contradictions on this stuff because he he complains about the deep state and and, and clearly and then they, hires him. <laughs> yeah, and then hires like he hires uh, John Bolton and he surrounds himself with neocons and yeah. and when he has an opportunity to do something about mass surveillance he he does the opposite is that because i mean it's not just the the, the people that he nominates but 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 the machine he's surrounded by these people does does he seems aware of who they are but is he not willing to take it on uh probably that's it uh daniel and i on uh, liberty report we talk about a lot why 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 you know he says this but does this and anytime he says something that we like we praise him and sometimes there's an act that we'll praise but then we also say well why did he hire this guy why does he hire elliot abrams <laughs> you yeah. know and this kind of thing yeah. uh so it's um it's once again if eisenhower truly didn't believe in uh, all this uh, shenanigans and CIA overthrows and and militarism uh, in in uh, a different manner than sending in in the troops, uh, if he didn't believe in it, why did he have why did he have high praise for it? Yeah. And uh, Cuba was, uh, you know, Eisenhower helped set up that fiasco. So and then which now Kennedy, Kennedy, I think uh, was, I mean, he's. He wasn't. He got better as he went on because he he accelerated the war over there in, in Vietnam. But uh, but he uh, he he was the he was the one that uh, was going to close down the war in Cuba, and I really believe that's connected to his assassination. Yeah. And uh, of course the uh, the war with the Kennedys and the CIA was ongoing for a long time. I think that's that's probably one of the biggest issues that uh, I mull over in my mind and try to write about, and and that is uh, uh, the uh, uh, the control of our government, the, the deep state, that who who really wields the power, and uh, evidently uh, there's there's not the people we elect. I yeah. mean, the, the elections. Are, <laughs> it's a farce. Yeah. <laughs> then they say, "What were you doing there? What do you do? You know, you were you were there." <laughs> well, I don't know how that happened. It was, well, it was this, a fluke. <laughs> this is one of the contradictions of progressivism and and maybe democratic socialism is that like one of the progressive dreams was to make a permanent class of bureaucrats who could not be fired because they were they were going to be smarter than the rest of us and sort of design things from the top down. But but it gets to one of these issues that there is sort of a, a left libertarian consensus on crony capitalism because you said that war is big business and the big business um, and, and all the people that, that produce the, the weapons of the war machine are very much uh, together with this idea that we should be in more wars. This happens again and again and I feel like there should be, there should be an acknowledgement from, from progressives that um, if you can't fire people, you can't hold them accountable, but they, they don't seem yeah. to appreciate that. You know, I had some uh, uh, more recent thoughts about that because uh, when you read in the paper today and people were asking, why is, why is big business sending money to help uh, uh, 
uh, Black Lives Matter and the Marxist system that's going on there. Why do they give it to the universities? They're the, the real culprits. But then there's big business channeling millions and millions of dollars into it. Isn't that a contradiction? Yeah. And I got to thinking that used to really, I didn't understand what was going on. And that was, uh, you'd, we'd read stories about World War II. Don't you know that the businessman supported Hitler? Now, I don't know if that's really true. Yeah. So it probably was, and was it was big money. I think they think that if these non-freedom lovers, but they're so-called the crony capitalists, uh, they know that power is going to exist, yeah. and they will get in, and they will support a, a Marxist movement, and they will divide, uh, divvy up the loot. Yeah. You know, as long as they're. I think, in that sense, fascism to me is more more dangerous than a principled communist who believes that you know it's designed to re forcibly redistribute the wealth in instead of uh, saying that we're going to have business ownership and they're going to be partners with government. I hate that yeah. when they say that uh, we're, we're going to be partners with the government. And that's not my idea of a proper political system. Yeah, like fascism is is government control of the means of productions. Yeah, uh, and they, they don't they don't have ownership, but they're right. really in charge. So it's like politics and, and contracts. Yeah, contracts and and all of that stuff. And so like it, and when I see, I see, I see businesses with their with their Black Lives Matter banners and their, I mean, it, it looks like tribute and payoff in hopes that they won't come after them. Mm -hmm. But um, eventually, they'll yeah, come the, after uh, them as well. The recent bill they're arguing over in Washington, you know, the the next trillion dollars or so, they're yeah. gonna, uh, the the. Um, the Defense Department is going to get $29 billion yeah. <laughs> and uh, buy weaponries and refurbish things, $29 billion. That used to be a lot of money, but that's just peanuts when they do a trillion, trillion, trillion. It's, and then what people say, well, isn't what Trump does, he just has these executive orders, uh, isn't that unconstitutional? Yeah, well, the whole system is unconstitutional. But what about... What about the money that churns out there in the bailouts from the Federal Reserve? Yeah. That's what they do in the Congress, peanuts yeah. compared to Fed dealt with, even in 08 and 09, estimates were probably over $15 trillion bailing out their friends to secure the system. And they're, I think, very much involved in that right now again. Yeah, so going back to my professor, Hans Senholtz, he, he, he argued essentially that there's four ways to spend money you don't have. You can, you can raise taxes, you can borrow three ways, and, and you can borrow, and there's only so much taxes you can raise because people will revolt. Um, there's only so much you can borrow because eventually people won't loan you money anymore. And the, the third option is the most pernicious. We're gonna, we're gonna print money and expand credit, and, and that's what they're doing right now. This, like, uh, the three <laughs> trillion they just spent, it's like insane. I guess it was two trillion. I, I, it's, it's trillions are now rounding errors on on the money they want to spend, but so much of it is is being done through the Fed and manipulating, deciding who wins and who loses. Are we going to bail out this business, not that business? Um, we've learned nothing. <laughs> Nothing's changed. What? Um, so it's a nice segue to to the Corona lockdowns. Uh, speaking of insanity, like here we are. Um, 
Um, we were supposed to have a couple weeks to flatten the curve back in March. And here we are in August in Texas of all places. And uh, a lot of businesses can't open. And a lot of governors and mayors and, and politicians that I've never heard of are, are telling us in very minute detail how to live our lives. We have to wear masks, so we have to do this, we can't do that. Um, and not inconsequentially, we just had the worst quarter of economic performance, I think, in the history of the United States. Yeah. And <clears throat> people are surprised. They, they, they mandated that businesses not, not serve customers. They mandated that customers not go out. And here we have this, this quarter. Um, is there a method to their madness here? What's, why are we doing this to ourselves? Well, I, I think that uh, long-term Marxism depends on chaos and disruption, and they'll, they'll pick up the pieces. So yes, a lot of that it is that way. But the, uh, the, the Marxists, uh, I think, know exactly, exactly what they're doing. So, uh, but I think the, uh, <clears throat> the one thing that I work hard with on my program is trying to distinguish, the, the, uh, sort out the problems. You know, Black Lives Matter, uh, demonstrations uh, against masks and pro-mask, anti-mask, and also uh, the financial bubble of the Federal Reserve. And people don't know it, but this all started with the bubble bursting. The financial bubble actually had bursted, uh, you know, before the coronavirus. I believe the coronavirus was overemphasized on purpose because it's it's not as deadly as influenza and and, uh, and, and different pneumonia. Uh, there's so many statistics to show that it is just exaggerated and and there was a lot of building of fear and hysteria and people are so intimidated power that they wanted. So that that has been been the problem. So so we had the but I think the Fed. Uh, distortion, the debt and the malinvestment, you've got to eliminate that in order to get back to real growth. All they can do now is print more money, which dilutes wealth, and, and it doesn't work. Distortion of interest rates, you know, yeah. is not supposed to help help us. So we don't even have interest rates. So yeah. that, that, uh, that has all led to it and made <clears throat> set the stage for Black Lives Matter coming in and to grab up on the, on the pieces. But, uh, and it distracts, <clears throat> excuse me, it distracts from the uh, Federal Reserve being a big part of this, the, one of the real culprits. Nobody talks about, you know, the Federal Reserve causing all this. They, we can't spend anything. Yeah. Without the Federal Reserve, you yeah. know, and nobody, nobody really pays much attention to it. Do you think that um, masks work? Masks? Yeah. Well, you're, you're I can't a say. I can't say no, never. Yeah. I think what they're doing now is useless yeah. and dangerous. I think there's good studies to show that if you're measuring. Uh, if you put a mask on and start measuring the oxygen content of uh, what's in your mouth and the CO2, CO2 comes up, goes up, oxygen goes down. And today we reported on the program of mask people make them sick. They're, the, the, the dentists are inundated now with people coming in because gums are getting worse and they have uh, 
mouth odors and they're looking for what's going on here. I think, I think it's a disease part of the mask. But I don't think for a minute. I believe that the Swedes had it right, uh, the Danish have it right, and some of those European countries have it. I think South Dakota has it right, and uh, they're accepting a more natural way, you know, natural immunity and uh, herd immunity. It's, it's real, and they, once they try to string this out and flatten the curve, they don't change anything. Uh, so, but it's, it is, most people say, oh, you don't think people are sick. No, I think they're very sick. That's why we ought to have better medical care for them. Yeah. You know, oh yeah, well, we put them on respirators as soon as we can. Yeah, it turns out respirators weren't the best thing to do it. Well, yeah, well, uh, we have sick people here. What do we do? Well, we'll force them into a nursing home where everybody dies. I mean, it's all government mismanaged. I've talked a lot about this since this came up because we know about separation of church and state. And of course, we had good libertarians said we have, should have separation of church and school. And I think we should have separation of, uh, of uh, medicine and the state. They shouldn't be in the practice of medicine. This whole thing that they can make these dictations and tell them people what to do. Yeah. I've worn a lot of masks, you know, temporarily when I'm doing surgery and all. But this whole idea of making kids wear those masks, and it's really. And today we cited an example of uh, one uh, I think she was in Tennessee, like a, like a, a board member of a city. And she said, anybody that wears a mask should be charged with murder, you know, or attempted murder. And then they, then you wonder why. Does or doesn't? No, no. If they don't, they, yeah, if they, they, don't, wear if they don't wear it, uh, they're, they're potential murderers and they should be arrested for that. that and that's why, that's why there's a lot of violence breaking out now. You mix that up with a person you know that's into it for because of black lives matter and marxism boy this is great stuff for them but that's uh that's all completely wrong you know i think that uh, a libertarian approach to this would be quite a bit different but you know some people would use a mask i, I had a, da a daughter not too long ago who was very ill in intensive care and all and uh she didn't have a good immune system, I wore a mask. I mean, it isn't the wearing of the mask. It's the universal force of yeah. doing things by people who don't know what they're doing. And uh, first, do no harm. But they're, they're, what they're doing is first thing we do is do more harm so we have more things to do. Yeah. So, but no, I, it's, uh, it's very, very bad. Uh, I think that uh, fortunately it looks like it's by gone, but they've already warned us there'll be a new virus next year. And of course, uh, I sort of detest the philosophy of Bill Gates and Fauci. You know, they they they're they're not in our interest. I'll tell you that. And and Gates for this uh, immune system and and uh, taking these vaccines to trace us and all that. That's that's uh, that's the worst kind of authoritarianism that you can think of. Yeah, it's very 1984. And yeah, scary. And it's, it strikes me that this whole idea that you would hide from a virus is, is sort of a medieval approach to, to medicine combined with, with central planning. You know, guys like Governor Cuomo um, actually thought that he could second guess the entire medical profession, the entire um, science profession, and, and, and herd uh, sick people into nursing homes, and it was a, a human tragedy. And it strikes me that uh, Perhaps Governor Cuomo should read a little bit of Ludwig von Mises. Yeah. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> no, probably not. Talk about what you're doing now, because I think there's um, um, the, the Ron Paul Liberty Report. Uh, you um, 
have every right to, to take it easy, but you just you just keep going because you think that that there's that the Ron Paul revolution is still brewing. What's going on? Right. Well, I, I didn't do this on purpose. Well, I did it on purpose to talk about like I did that first campaign when I was just going to talk a little bit about it and nothing's going to come of it. So I wanted this uh, little studio for communications and, and I, would, I would do it. But it turns out now, under the today's circumstances, I don't wear masks, so I can't go very far. And I'm not going to get on that airplane under these conditions. So all of a sudden, I don't give speeches anymore. Yeah. I don't go give speeches. I don't travel. I'm not going to get on those airplanes like that. I, I am not going to capitulate to what I think is a, a, a lot of evil out there. So I have my little studio, and Daniel McAdams is co-host on this. We do a lot of foreign policy, but we've talked a lot about coronavirus. It's a, it's a libertarian channel. We, do, we go live uh, at, at 11 a.m. Uh, Central Time, uh, five days out of the week. So uh, I, I like that. It's, it's, uh, I don't have to travel, and I still, still say a few words, you yeah. know, and uh, the audiences are decent, but they're not huge. And, but uh, the one thing I say, well, yeah, your numbers aren't like uh, uh, like a big radio television station. I said, yeah, but we don't know how big it is. We don't know in the internet. Sometimes people pick up what you say and they spread it around. Yeah. So uh, maybe there's a little bit of that. <laughs> so uh, no, I'm very much involved in that, which means that I work hard at trying to keep up with uh, with uh, the current events and trying to apply our philosophy to that and how to solve the problems and. Uh, yeah, without violence. Yeah, always without violence. So what uh, you've you've been doing this a long time, and and you've had, you know, you've created social movements. What is the legacy of the Ron Paul Revolution? <laughs> People ask me that. And I say I don't know. <laughs> it's up to somebody else. I mean, uh, the thing that it has excited me the most is if when I'm talking to young people or somebody a little older, maybe even a congressman, they come and they say, I want to know more about what makes you tick. You know, that question that was uh, told to me by Leonard, that that's what you want. So that, uh, that's, that's what I enjoy the most. And, and I did get a lot of support from the young people. Uh, and some of them, boy, I bump into them, and they have their own organizations, and they have, and they are still speaking out. But but you don't know what I got the question frequently at the end of a speech. They say, "Okay, okay, we're excited. Well, tell us what to do." And I said, "Do whatever you want, <laughs> you know, because I don't know what you're capable of doing." I mean, you, there's a lot of different ways of doing it. Some have been very creative, but uh, I also emphasize the fact that, uh, you know, you, you have to try to work at understanding things because none of us are infallible and we don't always understand. And the more information we have, uh, the better. And uh, if you do that, you don't have to worry too much about uh, your social activities because you should, you should have fun doing this. I mean, I, when when I wanted to soften my stance at the college campuses, I said, but if there are groups of you and you get together, you should have a lot of fun. Back then, we were allowed to have fun. You yeah. know? Fun now, was still now legal. we could even now we can't even have our rallies. You know, so you you want to and with like-minded, I'm sure you know about it because you talk to people that are interested in the philosophy that people come together 
because they have a basic agreement, and and we we get to uh, we get to work on our conspiracy. <laughs> you know, how are we going to make things different the right kind of way? Yeah. So I, I I think people should have fun. If I if I couldn't be involved, you, you know, this I didn't have my studio, and because uh, before coronavirus, I would get a lot of interviews. Of, lot less now because of the way th way things are going but uh, it's a it's a, it's something that uh, uh, I'm pleased that I'm able to do it here and that there and I didn't I didn't have a plan for it I didn't know oh I'm gonna lose I'm gonna have this studio and all but uh, it just sort of came together it emerged spontaneously <laughs> yeah. right. thank you dr. Paul this has been a fun time wonderful nice to have been with you Thanks for watching Kibbe on Liberty. By now, you know this is the most important event of your week. So make sure you subscribe on YouTube. Click the little bell so you get notifications. Kibbe on Liberty, mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.